Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. We'll be there in in just a moment. We're going to start with a story about a guy named Stephen, which many of you know, but he's actually dead right now. Stephen is and was, I should say, now that he's gone, Stephen was a very charismatic leader. He was able to pull people around himself and build these great teams that accomplished amazing, amazing things. And back in 1974, I know that's before my time, but Stephen got with another Stephen, and they both went by the name of Steve. Maybe you know their last names. There's Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. These two guys, they invented this company together Wozniak was the brains, but Steve Jobs, he was really the charismatic leader of Apple Computer Inc. Some of you are holding iPhones right now. That's okay, you can still be saved and have those, right? (laughs) But Steve Jobs was very determined, and he saw this personal computer revolution about to happen, and uh, they went to this little company called Xerox, if you've ever heard of them, they're really good at copying things. And they saw something called a graphical user interface that the bigwigs at Xerox didn't really want at that time. A graphical user interface is really just graphics on a screen. So your phone has it, your desktop computer has it. It used to not exist at one time. Those of you who are younger, you may not have realized that the original computers didn't have a display even. And you had to program them with pieces of paper called punch cards, all sorts of cool things, or switches and buttons. Some of you are nodding your head because you've done that. And I know my parents have done that. But today, we we have this amazing technology, and a lot of it's due to this visionary leader, as they'd say, Steve Jobs. And he he recruited this this great team of people, and one of his first major launches in 1974 was the Macintosh PC with that graphical user interface. Well, in that time, they had already launched the Apple II computer, which was just kind of a a normal mass-produced Uh, first personal computer that they had made, but then they had the Macintosh, and that was a big deal. But Steve Jobs brought in another leader because he realized that he needed a CEO to run his company, and so he brought in John Scully, who was at the time the president of Pepsi, and he said, John, do you really want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to change the world? And that was his pitch, and he brought John Scully in, but that didn't last too long because Steve Jobs was was very much... um, uh, my way or the highway type of person. He was the type of leader that wanted sheer perfection on everything. He was the type of leader that pushed his people long hours. In other words, we're going to get these amazing visionary products out the door, and it didn't matter what it cost or what it took. And so just a year later, after the launch of that Macintosh computer, Steve Jobs was fired from Apple by the CEO he had hired. And now he's a- ousted. So what is any good you know, leader do? Well, they go start another company, right? And so that's exactly what Steve Jobs did, and he went and started the Next computer company, and it was literally named Next, N-E-X-T, and he continued to build these great personal computers. The only problem was, back then, a, a personal computer cost anywhere between 10 and 20 grand, so 10 and $20,000, and that was in 70s money, 70s and 80s money. So you add inflation, you could almost get a house in Boise for that amount. So that's about, no, I'm kidding, it wasn't quite that expensive. Um, and so he had this next company that he built up and eventually became the, a CEO of another company you might have heard of, uh, Pixar, and they've made a few movies that you might have seen as well. 
And, and under his leadership, these companies grew to the point that eventually Apple, who was then struggling because of the lack of leadership, hired Steve Jobs back in 1997 and brought him back in his company and all of that. And it took just a few short years and Steve Jobs again was CEO of Apple Computer, the company that he had started, been kicked out of, came back to, took over, and then under his leadership again, made some amazing products in your minds and my mind too. Things like the iPod, the iPad, iPhone was next, and the, the iPhone, which some of you have. And, and he was, by all accounts, a brilliant person, not so much in the technological sense, but in the people sense. In other words, people followed Steve Jobs. In fact, they, would have, they had these sayings when Steve Jobs would get up and give his presentations of how amazing and great his products were. They called it the reality distortion field. And that's gibberish for he was an excellent salesman. You would come and sit and hear Steve Jobs tell you how great his product was, and you, by the end of it, didn't care how much it cost, you didn't care the limitations, all you saw was the amazing features, and you wanted that right then and right there. Today, Steve Jobs is dead. He passed away of cancer at the age of 56, unexpectedly. But today, Apple is one of the biggest if not the biggest company as far as worth in the entire world. And 50% of Americans now, it just crossed over 51%, I believe, have iPhones as their phone. So about half of you right now are holding an iPhone. The other half of us have Androids, okay? We don't go that direction, and that's okay. So, you know, that's, we can argue about all that. So by all accounts, Steve Jobs accomplished great things. He was a great leader. And yet, if you read any of his biographies or even see some of his stories, he was also a leader to a fault, where he would manipulate and coerce and try to get people to do his bidding. And in the end, Steve Jobs could not overcome even what comes to all of us, and that is death. His last words were just, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow, as he lay there dying of cancer. He. Uh, converted to Buddhism, so as far as we know, Steve Jobs was not saved, did not know the Lord. And yet people still today are what they call Apple fanboys or Apple fanatics. Some people, you have all Apple in your life. You have the Macintosh computer, you have the iPad, you have the iPhone, and that, that's your life. And why is that? Because, largely because of this influential leader. And there's many influential leaders in our world today, right, that people would follow and gravitate to and say, I want to attach myself to. They're great, they're dynamic, they're charismatic, maybe they're even good looking, maybe they can even speak good, speak well. And on all of those things, and people will flock to them, and we as humans, don't we like to set up man? as kind of a mini God in our lives or a mini leader in our lives and say, this is the person or this is the cause or this is the group that I'm going to follow. And in some ways, it can be said about us right now, right? Because here we all are and we've gathered together and we've, most of us, you know, taken our showers and put our nice clothes on and we smell good and we look good and we're meeting in this same building all together and, you know, you have this one person up here that's speaking to you, and you're like, yeah, th this is the guy I'm following. 
<laughs> feel sorry for you, right? <laughs> and yet people could say, well, you're just following a man, right? You're just following another man and another man's words or wisdom or leadership in that. What we see from our text today is, yes, God does have leaders that he set up and, and put. And some of them are really, really bad. Some of them are sort of good, but none of them are perfect. So when it comes to man's leadership, man's leadership always fails. Have you ever looked up to someone? You loved them, you thought the best of them, and yet they let you down. It could be someone very close to you. It could be a spouse at times, it could be a parent at times, it could be a sibling or a boss or just a really close friend. And we realize pretty quickly, because we are human, because we are sinners, that we shouldn't prop up man above really God and specifically above God's word. We've been going through uh, first, first Kings. That's where we're in, yeah, First Kings. We've been going through First Kings the last few Sunday mornings that I've been preaching. And I know there's been month gaps in between some of those. So some of them have been even a year, year ago that we looked at. But we were looking at the life specifically of a man as he spoke for God. And that man's name is? Elijah, Elijah. So Elijah, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, great prophet. And we've, we've walked through his life starting back a few chapters. And we are introduced to these two characters in chapter 16 of both Elijah, but also the wicked king in, in Elijah's time. And the wicked king that ruled over Israel in the time of Elijah was Ahab, this guy not named Ahab who we saw like his grandfather was really wicked, his father was really wicked, but Ahab outdid them all. He was even most wicked. And this is where Elijah is serving under. And then we saw that Elijah comes on the scene and he actually declares the word of God and is able to make it stop rain, according to the word of God, for three years. Three-year drought. People defend, depend upon water to eat. So food is running scarce, all of these things. So God takes care of Elijah, his prophet. Remember, there's the, the ravens and, and the brook that he sends them to, and he's fed there for a while, but eventually that brook dries up. So then God sends them outside of Israel to a foreign nation, to a foreign lady, to a foreign widow of all people to take care of him with just a small flask of oil and a little bit of meal. And they're able to survive on that food for a while, for those times of drought. And then her son actually dies, and she's like, wait a minute, I've served the man of God, I've done what he said, and you're still taking my son. And Elijah actually brings the son back to life. Great, amazing, powerful things happening. But it only gets more amazing when you look at the leadership of Elijah. You have the whole standoff then between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And they meet on the top of Mount Carmel, and Elijah says, okay, you pray to your God, See if he'll answer you. See if he'll send fire down. And I'll pray to my God after that, after mocking them, making fun of them. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's on vacation. And Elijah just offers a simple prayer. And what does God do? God shows his power and consumes the water, the altar, and the sacrifice. Fire from heaven. And then people say, oh, yes, the Lord, he is God. He is God. That's right. Jehovah's God. I, you know, they keep on forgetting that because of all the failed leadership that's happened over and over. And immediately after that, though, what happens? Elijah has a little bit of a, a breakdown. We might call it a mental breakdown, but really it's a spiritual and physical and mental breakdown, all of those things. 
where Jezebel says, that's Ahab's wicked wife, the queen, says, I want your life, and I'm going to come for your life. And even though Elijah was just on the mountaintop, had all this great experience, he flees, he runs, he's, he's choosing not to trust God, and he goes to the wilderness to try to get away from Jezebel, and he says, God, would you just kill me? Because there's no one else left. There's no other leaders. There's no other people following you. I'm the only one, and I've done it all this time. There's no one else left. And God says to him, get some sleep, eat some food. Then God says a second time, get some sleep, eat some food. And he says, no, there are other people. And I'm not finished with you yet. And Ahab, his day will come. And he's actually going to suffer the judgment and the consequences. And that brings us to our chapter here. Chapter 20, right in the middle of the story of Elijah, this great leader, we get a whole chapter, and guess what? Elijah is not mentioned at all. This great leader who God used greatly and restored and all of those things, and God is saying, I'm going to use you even to judge Ahab. Elijah's nowhere to be found here. But we find three other characters that are pushed onto the front of the scene and shown over and over again in four snapshots. So chapter 20 of 1 Kings has four snapshots we're going to look at, and it's between these three different characters. The first character is a guy named Ahab, that wicked king, the one who's supposed to be a good and godly leader, but is not. And then you have the second guy, if you look at chapter 20, it actually starts out, it's Ben-Hadad. So you have Abe and Ben, right? Or Ahab and Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria, enemies of Israel. He's, a, he's the bad guy that you're supposed to think in this story, even though you already know Ahab's not a good guy either. And then you don't get Elijah at all. You just get a prophet. And never given his name, it's just a prophet of God that shows up several times. Shows up several times. And all three of these men are leaders, leaders in their own way, king of Israel, king of Syria, and spokesperson for God. And what we're going to see as we walk through chapter 20 of 1 Kings is that yet again, man's leadership fails, but God's word is sure. So what are you going to pick? What are you going to choose? Are you going to follow after a man and his charismatic leadership or whatever he says, or are you actually going to obey and follow the word of the Lord no matter what? The first 12 verses is the first scene or the snapshot or the little video clip we get in this story of Ahab versus Ben, and we'll call him Ben-Hadad. We shorten his name to Ben and that might be easier, but Ben-Hadad and Ahab. And this first scene shows us in verses 1 through 12, man's lack of leadership. In other words, you have kings here, but you don't have good leaders. And even though you're supposed to look up to these guys, they aren't great leaders. How does it start off? Well, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 20, it starts off by saying, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, so this is north of Israel. So Israel is the northern kingdom at this time. The kingdom split into two. So you have Jerusalem down here and Judah. And then above that, you have the second kingdom, of, and that's the kingdom of Israel. And that's where Ahab is king right now. And then above that, you have the kingdom of Syria, we'll say. And that's where Ben-Hadad is king, but not 
over God's people, of course. It's outside of that. So here Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together. And there were 30 and 2 kings with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, that would be kingdom of Israel if you think of it that way, and warred against it. So right off the bat, what do we see? We see that there is a great army against God's people. Here's this great threat. Here's this army that's coming and besieging. And what's the size of this army? We'll see that it's actually quite large. But look who Ben-Hadad recruits. He recruits 32 other kings or people that also have power or leaders in his area and says, let's gather together. In my, in my mind, that's a lot of kings. That's a lot of people to gather together. We're going to get all of these together and it's, it's 33 against 1. 33 v. 1, okay? And we're going to come up against Ahab and we're going to take Israel out. And so here's this threat against God's people. What do leaders do in times of threats? What should they do? Well, here's the threat spelled out, verses 2 and 3. And he, that has been Hadad, sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city, and said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine. Thy wives also and thy children, even the goodliest, the best looking ones, are mine. Great. That's a great message to receive, right? Someone knocks on your front door. Okay, simple deal. I want all your money. I want all your possessions. I want your wife and I want your kids. Your response. right? We're in Idaho. So that's your response if someone says that, right? And you would think, ain't no way. Okay, I could understand if I'm being robbed. Money, just money. Things, just things. If that happens, not the end of the world. But you better believe that I'm not just going to say, yeah, you can have my good-looking wife and kids, okay? Just going to hand those over. And so here's the threat then against God's people. What do you expect a good king or a good leader to do? Here's this threat against God and his people. You're going you're to say, ain't no way, Jose. I mean, ain't no way, Ben. Right? But we see this failure in, in the leadership of King Ahab. Look at verse 4. You get a really weak response from Israel's king. And the king of Israel answered and said, O Lord, my Lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. What does he say right back to Ben-Hadad? You're my Lord. You're my king. What you said, everything's yours. Just open the front door, come right on in. It's all yours. Now, what does this tell us about Ahab? What would you call a leader like this? Well, you have some words, because I know you have some leaders in our life. And you shouldn't say not nice things about them. God has given us specific instructions to honor the king even when the king is bad. But we would call this weak, spineless, you know, all of those things. Not a leader that you can follow. But what else this also show about Ahab's heart? In this first snapshot, verses 1 through 12, where we see man's failure in leadership, there's no call out to God. There's no mention of God's prophet. There's no word from God. All of the dialogue is just King Ahab and Ben. It's just them. King Ahab never goes to the prophet. He never goes to God's word. 
He doesn't even have that on his mind. Because he just got stomped by God, remember, on the top of Mount Carmel. And he knows he's in the wrong. Maybe that's part of that. But he just opens the front door in this weak response. Well, what do you get when you have a weak response? You get an even greater threat. And that's exactly what happens then. Ben-Hadad comes right back, verse 5, and ups the ante and gives an even greater threat against him. Verse 5 and 6 And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver, thy gold, thy wives, and thy children. So that's the original request that Ahab gave into. Verse 6 says, Yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the house of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Uh Uh-oh, what happens here? Now the threat is not just, we're going to do this, but the threat then comes that it's going to be extensive. We're going to search your house. It's going to be intrusive. We're all up in your stuff, and it's going to be immediate. It's happening within 24 hours. We're going to be there right away. It's coming. So this weak leadership, right on top of that, gets an even stronger response from the enemy, from Ben-Hadad, of coming right in. So then Ahab realizes, wait a minute, I just sold the house and the kingdom and all of that. Maybe I should have consulted with someone. So where does Ahab go? Well, Ahab's response is in the last half of this section, verses 12 through, or 7 through 12. When the king of Israel, verse 7, called all the elders of the land, so all the other leaders in Israel, and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeketh mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold, and I denied him not. So then he has to go and explain it. Failed leadership. He has to go before his elders, his other leaders, and said, this is what happened. Ben-Hadad came. He asked for everything. I gave him everything. But I forgot to check with you guys to see if, if we should have done anything differently. So now that I've done that, tell me what to do. And that's what he says at the, in verse 8. And all the elders and the people, so it's not just the elders, but the people said unto him, hearken not unto him, nor consent. Oh, that would have been nice to know, the first part, right? So here we have, again, man's failed leadership. And they say, wait a minute, don't listen to Ben-Hadad, and don't, don't do what he says. Well, isn't that a great response? But what has Ahab already done? He's shown great weakness. He's shown failed leadership. He's shown no trust in God. Then he goes to his people, and his people say, well, don't listen to him, and don't consent. Do you have a choice really at this point? No, you've already given up and given in. And so to say, oh yeah, I'm not going to listen or consent. You know, our children try that sometimes when we we tell them to do something. I've noticed this with my kids sometimes. It's not really a great strategy with your parents. Your parents tell you to do something, kids, and then you say, I got it. This is how I'm going to respond to my parents. I won't listen to them and I I won't do what they say. How does that usually end up for you, right? Or we just, for us adults, we know that uh, one of our beloved agencies just hired or is hiring another 38,000 member task force to help us. And you can say, I'm not going to pay my taxes and I won't consent, but the government might have something to say about that too, right? (laughs) And some people have tried to fight those fights and it has probably not ended the best for them. And so there's this weakness, this no consent of God, finally going to the people. And then we come back to verse 9. 
and they start getting ready for war. And it's actually kind of funny because it's kind of like a jousting match with words. So this is Old Testament Twitter right here, okay? They're actually going to just tweet back and forth these, these insults really at each other as they build up towards it. They're saying, okay, war is inevitable. Ahab did nothing really except give everything up. And what do they say? Well, look at verse 9. Wherefore, he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad. So this is Ahab tweeting back to Ben. Tell my lord the king, all of thou didst sin for the servant at the first I will do, but this thing I may not do. In other words, what you asked the first time, you can have my wives and my gold, but you can't come tomorrow. You can't do it right away. You can't just take whatever you want. Okay, so he's saying I couldn't, re- uh, couldn't uh, approve your second request, only your first ones, right? And the messenger departed in verse 9 and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent unto him and said, here's his tweet or his message back. The gods so do to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. Well, what is he saying there? It's a little, a little confusing maybe if you just read it at once and see what he says. But if you break it down a little bit, the gods do so unto me and more also. What is Ben-Hadad doing? He's swearing by his false gods. And he's giving allegiance to them and saying, if I don't keep my word and come destroy you and take all that you have, may my own gods come and inflict judgment and pain upon me. That's what Ben-Hadad said. So he's really giving a swear or an oath or a promise in the name of his gods that I'm going to destroy your God, and your people. And, he, and he, then he says, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for a handle, handfuls for all the people that follow me. Well, who are the people that are following Ben-Hadad right now? Well, it's all these armies, and it's all these 32 kings, and all of their armies as well. So it's this big group of people that are coming, that are following him. And what does he mean by a dust of Samaria shall suffice for a handful? Well, remember what his second request was, it was, I'm going to go into your house and take everything that you have. And the idea is, you're going to be so overrun by my army, and I'm going to take all that you have, that all of my soldiers by the end are just going to be grabbing the dust even off your shelf. In other words, Samaria is going to be reduced to nothing but dust. And that's what we're going to take for our reward. We're going to take all your wives, all your kids, all your stuff, your house, and we're going to destroy everything so that nothing is left except for dust. So you get the idea that they're, they're jousting back and forth here. Again, no mention of God. What do we have here? Just two proud leaders tweeting at each other. And you didn't even know that was in the Old Testament, right? Verse 10, and then verse 11, the king of Israel then comes right back, and the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, so Ahab's sending the message back, tell him, let him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. So what is Ahab saying right back to him? When do you put on your harness or your armor? When does that happen? When are you putting it on? Before battle, before you start, as you're going to battle. When are you taking your armor off? If you live, you're taking it off at the end, right? So what is Ahab saying back to him? He's saying, all right, we're going to fight. Don't boast about it. I mean, everyone's strong when they're wearing armor and still alive. But who's the real victor? It's whoever's left standing at the end. So that's what Ahab is messaging right back to him. Verse 12, and it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard his message, as he was drinking, this is an orange juice, by the way, 
this is alcohol. So he was getting drunk. He and the kings in the pavilions. He said unto his servants then, so here's the final message back in this scene, set yourselves in array, and they set themselves against the city. So the enemy here is ready to fight. Ready to fight, ready to go in, getting ready, getting geared up. And they're going to come and clash with God's people. And in this first scene, really the most striking thing is the lack of what is there. And what do we see in this first scene? There's no Elijah. He doesn't show up on this whole story here. There's no prophet. There's no word from God. There's no seeking him. And what is man like when you don't have a word from God? You're not seeking him. What is mankind like? Right? It's just squabbling back and forth, back and forth, squabbling back and forth. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. No, I'm better. No, I'm better. No, I'm going to beat you up. No, I'm going to beat you up. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen any of that in the world out there in, say, the past year? Man without God, man void of God, what does that look like? Squabbling, beating each other up, not seeking God or his word. Let me ask you another question. You don't have to answer out loud. Have you seen that within a church? Have you seen that within a Christian's life? Have you seen that within your own life? In other words, you can, it, can, it can be really easy to say, as Ahab could have said, I'm king of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. God's on my side, so I can do whatever I want. Sometimes we can have that attitude too, even as Christians, even in church, right? I'm going to ignore the word of God because I think either I'm right or I'm the best or I'm the biggest, or it's my way. And I would say we as a church, we have to lead, even in our leadership of who we are, we have to lead from a platform of humility that we are subject all to God and his spirit. And then all of us as a church body have to be seeking the word of God, not the word of man. Because this is what the word of man looks like. And we've all tasted it and we've all seen it. And it doesn't look like God. It doesn't look like Jesus, does it? It's just a bunch of squabbling. So the, the question here at the end of our first scene really is, who are you going to listen to? We like listening to ourselves because we're pretty good advisors of ourselves, right? I know what I want. I, I know how I want to do it. <laughs> And I know what's best for me, right? That's what the world would tell us. Or you can listen to your favorite fill-in-the-blank, whether it's politician or charismatic tech leader or even preacher of the word, and you can follow a man or a person instead of following God. Who are you listening to? Man's lack of leadership only produces man-empowered results. And guess what? It stinks. 
It doesn't look good at all. But thankfully, in our next scene, verses 13 through 25, God's greatness is going to be on display. God's greatness displayed to one. So we've seen man's lack of leadership. Now in verses 13 through 25, we're going to see God's greatness displayed specifically to one, and that one is Ahab. Notice how verse 13 through 15 start. It shows God's promise. God's promise. God's promise is still going to be true, even in the midst of Ahab's wickedness. Look at, with me, if you would, at verse 13. It says, and behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel. Now, this wasn't a prophet that Ahab had requested. This wasn't Elijah. Otherwise, we would have gotten a name. It was just one of those prophets that God had told Elijah in the previous chapter. There's still thousands that have not bowed their knee to Baal, nor worshiped him. They're still preaching the truth. Here's one of those prophets. They don't even need a name. They just show up on scene. And what does the prophet say? Verse 13 again. Thus saith the Lord, hast thou seen all this great multitude? I love it. God points out the problem first. He says there's a big problem. There's a great multitude. This whole army is going to crush you. How do you feel about that? Look outside, Ahab. Look, count all those armies, all those kings, all those people. Have you seen the great multitude? Have you seen the problem? Have you seen the pickle you're in? That's real confidence building, right? Morale boost. But here's where God's promises hit hard. They come right in. And notice the last part of verse 13. Behold, I will deliver it unto thine hand this day. Why? And thou shalt know that I am the Lord. That word for Lord is the same word, Jehovah or Yahweh. It's God's personal I am name that he revealed to Moses. His personal name to his covenant people. And he's saying there is a great problem with those wanting to crush you, take you out, all of those things. And it's a big problem, but I'm going to take care of it. And why am I going to take care of it? Ahab, am I going to take care of it because you're such a good king? No. Remember, we've already read about Ahab, and he's one of the most wicked kings. Am I going to take care of it because you made all the right choices in this time? Because you sought me, you asked for God's word, all of those things? Again, no. Ahab didn't seek the prophet. The prophet just shows up. Why am I going to do it? I'm going to do it, Ahab, because I want you specifically to know that I am God. Who's the real leader here? Is it Ben-Hadad? Is it Ahab? Is it even the prophet? No, it's all pointing back to you have to see God's greatness And he's doing it based on who he is and his promises, even with all this squabbling going on down below. So Ahab responds in verse 14, and Ahab said, by whom? So who am I supposed to use to accomplish this, Lord? Well, at least he's asking questions now. And he said, the prophet, the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, verse 14, even by the young men of the princes of the providences, or the provinces. And he said, who shall order the battle? Or who, sh- who gets to start first? And he said, thou, you. So there's two really important things here. You, you might read this and say, oh great, they got young men. Young men are strapping, they're strong, you know, they're ready to fight, all of these things. That's not what this word means. This, this word young man was the same word used of David when he fought Goliath. So this would be an untrained servant that's young. 
not a mighty man of valor. In other words, there's, gonna, there's a contrast set up here that this isn't one of your great warriors going out to fight. Who are you supposed to use? You're supposed to use the servants of all your leaders. Just pick those people, those young men, and we're going to put them out front, okay? They're going to fight the battle. What is God showing yet again? It's not human or human's leadership or human's power that's going to win this. And then he said, you're going to go first. In other words, Ahab, you go and attack first because I'm on your side. In other words, if you know the word of the Lord, you don't have to wait to obey it. You just go do it. It's clear. God's promises, if they're clear, you can go and do it. So he gives God's promise. And then again, what is the plan? Well, verse 15 through 18 show that. Here's God's plan. Then he numbered the young men, verse 15, of the princes of the provinces, and there were 232. So there's only 232 of these servants that he found. And after them, he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, being 7,000. There's the army. So it's 232 young men, servants up front, and 7,000 in the army. And they went out at noon. Remember, noon was the call time that Ben-Hadad was going to come and search his house. So he gets to attack first. But Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions or the tents, and he and the kings and the 32 kings that helped him. And the young men of the princes of the province went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out and told, they told him, saying, there are men coming out of Samaria. So what's happening here? You have the 232 weak men, or weaker, or untrained men, we should say, up front. You have an army of 7,000 behind them. And then on the other side, you have these 33 kings with Ben-Hadad as their leader. And what are they doing? They're drinking themselves drunk in their tents, not really preparing for war, right? They're not sharp or ready. And then they see coming out of Samaria, oh, here comes this army. So his servants come to him and they say, there's men coming out of Samaria. We got to do something. What are we going to do? So verse 18, Ben-Hadad responds, and he says, whether they come out for peace, take them alive, or whether they come out for war, take them alive. And you look at that and say, wait a minute, is this a good military strategy? Well, you have to remember what state is Ben-Hadad in right now. He's drunk. <laughs> He's not thinking clearly. And so he gives kind of a nonsensical answer. You know, if they're coming for peace, you can take them alive. Okay, that kind of makes sense. But if they're coming for war, you don't just greet them and say, hey, could we capture you, please? It doesn't really work that way. And so we see that God's plan all along was to use the youth, the young untrained men, to oppose the mighty warriors. So on Ben-Hadad's side, he had all these kings, all these warriors, and yet God disables them, in a sense, to the point where their own leader is un give, unable to give a really intelligible answer. And he says, take them alive even if they're coming for war. Okay, see how that works out. But this is God's plan all along. And then we see actually God's victory when he's displaying his greatness. Verses 19 through 21, God's victory. So these young men of the princes of the province came out of the city and the army which followed them. And they slew everyone his man. So these young men are just taking them out. And the Syrians, that's Ben-Hadad's army, fled and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. They were so close. So they're winning the battle Israel has great victory because God has promised and given them this plan. 
and yet the king escapes. So verse 21, and the king of Israel, Ahab, that is, went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. So here's where the rest of the army finally gets involved and they take out the big, the big horses and the chariots and all those mighty men. God gives an unmistakable victory to his people. Not based on might or strength in the front, not based on any man's plan, but notice God makes a promise, he gives a plan, and he gives victory in those promises and plan. Is that who our God is still today? That character of God? That's why I love Old Testament stories. They show us the character of God all throughout. Does God give us promises? Can we take them to the bank? Can we deposit that check and get it? Absolutely. Does God give us a plan? Well, in some sense, yes. But another is he allows us to be creative within those guidelines. In other words, he says, go and make disciples. But that's a worldwide mandate for all different cultures, times, and people. So the, the specifics of that plan may, may look a little different, but he's still saying, get out there and do it, right? So God's called us to do something. Does God give victory in those promises and plans? Absolutely. In other words, here's the great hope when you see failed man's leadership everywhere. Here's the great hope. God has promises, God has a plan, and God's going to accomplish his promises and plan. And that should give you and me great hope and comfort and strength that if we're going to follow God's plan and not a man, if we're going to follow God's promises, listen to those and not just some person, there's great strength, great victory in that. Praise the Lord. The bad king, though, he escaped. He got away. And so we see the job is not quite done yet. So God gives a warning. Look at verse 22. The prophet comes back. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go strengthen thyself and mark and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against thee. What is he saying? He's saying, you didn't get the king. He escaped. This is in the fall right now. But at the return of the year, he's talking about spring. That's when they would say the return. And spring was then also the time when kings went to war. You know that phrase from the story of David and Bathsheba. David would have normally been out to war in the springtime. Well, that's what he's talking about. That Ben-Hadad, he's going to go back. He's going to regather another army. He's going to re-strengthen himself. And so your job's not done quite yet. God gives the victory, but we're not finished yet. In other words, keep pressing on. Keep fighting. Mark yourself. Strengthen yourself. Verse 23, and here's how the king Ben-Hadad was going to do that. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills, because that's where they fought. They fought in the hilly region. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plains or the valleys, the open area, and surely we will be stronger than they. And do this thing. Take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms or in their place. And number thee an army, like an army that thou hast lot, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he that has been Hadad hearkened unto their voice and did so. So what happens here? Here you get, right after God's greatness on display and God's victory, you get man's counsel. And you get to contrast those two things. God's promise, plan, and victory. And you get to contrast it to what man has to say. And what does man have to say? The reason Israel won, 
It's just because we were in the, in the hills. So God is only a God of hills. What did they just do to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the God of Israel, to the God overall, to the God that had created everything? They tried to put him in a box and put him up on the mountain and say, that's why we lost. Does man do that today? Does man take the great God of the universe who's created all and is eternal and shove him in a little box and say, that's who God is and that's why he's not doing what I want or things didn't go my way or I don't want to believe, you know, what he's revealed because, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Man does that in so many different ways. Samantha and I had the privilege of having two Mormon missionaries in our live, or in our, at our kitchen table this week. And really, I was just there to ask them questions because I wanted to hear from their mouths. So it's two young, young ladies, and they really confirmed all the things that Mike has taught us in Sunday school about the theology of the Mormons. And the one thing that I left them with, because they said, I asked them very specifically, where does your heavenly father, or heavenly father, as they would call God the father, where does he come from? And here I have this 19-year-old girl, you know, grew up in the Mormon church, believes it with all her heart. And he said, well, I haven't really studied that out too much, but I believe, you know, he was once like us, and he, he was on another world, and he basically, you know, eventually became God and was able to become God of, of this world. And so it just keeps going back. And what I left them with was two things. I said, you know, I want to know who the ultimate Heavenly Father is. In other words, I don't want to worship your Heavenly Father. I want to know who's the original one, the one that actually created all. And then the second thing I had left them with was the idea of hell, because they told me that they, they didn't believe in hell, and we'll go through that a little bit more. They have a, a purgatory of sorts, but they actually have these three kingdoms in heaven where you can go and still get away from God and do whatever you want. Um, but in all of that, what have they done with God? They've taken the almighty creator of the universe, and they've made him a man just like us, who is exalted, and now is God over just this world. They've, they have a really... I know it sounds almost offensive to say, but it's true. They have a puny God. So man can do this in so many different ways. How can you and I do this? Well, it's in how we think of God so often. We can say, you know, God's going to bless me because of my performance or because I give so much in the offering or because I come to church or because I look good or all of those things. But what does Christ say over and over and over in the New Testament? It's your heart and it's Christ in you that is, that is doing this work as you submit to this, the Spirit. So we can even get off on our idea of God. And so there was a wrong hearkening that people did not know God. Man's wisdom is weak without a knowledge and a revelation of the great I am. But we're not done yet. There's still another battle. God's greatness was showed specifically in that first, that last section to Ahab, even though others saw it. But now it's going to be blown wide open again, and God's greatness is going to be shown to all in verses 26 through 34. So we've seen man's failed leadership, verses 1 through 12. We've seen God's greatness shown specifically to Ahab in verses 13 to 25 to 1. Now in verses 26 through 34, we're going to see God's greatness shown to all. So it comes in verse 26, and it came to pass the return of the year. This is springtime now. Ben-Hadad has built his army up. That Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. So here they get all of their armies together now and they're going to clash. 
Verse 27, and the children of Israel were numbered and all present and went against them. And the children of Israel, last part of verse 27, pitched before them like two little flocks of kids or goats. But the Syrians filled the country or the whole valley or the whole plain. What's the picture set up? We've gathered everyone we can. We've gotten them all together. And here's this on the Syrian side, innumerable army, huge army, far as the eye can see. It fills the plain. It fills the open area. And here's Israel before them. Two little goats. Just two little white dots. You know. And the idea is, you know, the ravenous wolves and the lions have come to circle and to kill. And they're just going to chomp it up. In other words, it'd be absolutely nothing for this huge Syrian army to just crush this little army of Israel. So that's the scene set up. But verse 28, we get the word from God again. And there came a man of God... And spake unto the king of Israel. So the prophet comes again and says unto Ahab and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills and he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver it all this great multitude into thine hand. And ye, that means you all, everyone, you shall know that I am the Lord. So you want to get God on your side, just have your enemy diss him, right? He's like, they said I was just the God of the hills and not the valleys. I'm the God over all. I cannot be contained. You cannot put me in a box. But because the Syrians have said that, I'm going to deliver this vast multitude into your hand, and ye shall know, you're all going to know that I am Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. He uses that again. So if you're a soldier then, in the army of Israel, you have a choice to make. You can believe what your eyes see and tell you, or you can believe what the word of the Lord is saying to you. What are you going to believe, right? Because we all have to make that decision. There's this great army in front of them. It looks impossible. Who are you going to believe? What you see or what you hear? What are you going to believe? And often that's the conflict we have too, right? This is my experience. This is what I believe. This is what I've, ex- uh, I've seen in my own life, am I going to submit that to what God actually says? What his word actually says? And that's the call then for the people of Israel. So what happens? Verse 29. And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that the seventh day the battle was joined. So what did they do? They just waited a week. That's to build excitement and intensity, right? Wouldn't you want that? We're just going to sit here and stare at each other for seven days. And then finally on the seventh day, after all of that, the battle was joined or started. And the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. They took out a hundred thousand men one day. That's a lot. Verse 30, but the rest fled to Aphek, that was the city where they had started in, into the city, and there was a wall fell upon 20 and 7,000 of men that were left. So they, they hide in the city, but then of course the children of Israel are marching or, or going against that city, and the wall finally falls, and how many more die? There's 27,000. So here we already have a great victory, 127,000 soldiers were dead. 
And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city, into the inner chamber. Now what is Ben-Hadad doing? He's hiding for his life in the middle of the city, the most secure place. Verse 31, And his servants said unto him, Behold now, we have heard that the king of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Peradventure he will save thy life. So they girded their sack sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel. What did they do here? They recognized already the character of God. Why would people say that the kings of Israel are merciful? Well, they weren't saying it necessarily because of the kings themselves. They were saying it because of the God of those kings of Israel. That they had been shown mercy before. So maybe we'll get that. And they're, so they're depending here really on the character of God of what little they've heard. And so they do that. In the middle of verse 32, they did all of that and came to the king of Israel. And they said, thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. So that's the message he's sending to Ahab. This is a lot better Twitter di- discourse here. Instead of uh, squabbling, now there's a little bit more of the humility that we see in Ben-Hadad. And he said, is he yet alive? He is my brother. This is Ahab's response. Wait a minute. Is he yet alive? Well, he wouldn't known, but yes, he is still alive. But then Ahab says, Ben-Hadad is my brother. What is he saying by that phrase right there? Oh, this is my buddy. Yeah, we're on the same page. Ahab, why would you do this? (laughs) Why would you do this after this great army and this great battle? But the men, verse 33, did diligently observe whether anything would come from him. And hastily, he did catch it. And they said, thy brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go bring him. And Ben-Hadad came forth, and he caused him to come up into his chariot. And Ben-Hadad said unto him, the cities which my father took from thy father I will restore. And thou shalt make the streets for thee in Damascus as my father made it in Samaria. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. What's happening here? The two kings finally meet in person. Ben-Hadad is humbled, but Ahab at the same time is saying, oh yeah, this is my brother, this is my buddy, this is my old pal. You know, he'll be my servant now. And so that's what Ben-Hadad does and says, just like we, we took parts of your city and your road and you had to pay tribute to us, well, let's just reverse that. I'll pay tribute to you now. You can have some of my city, some of my road, some of my goods and all of that. Let's make this covenant. And what is Ben-Hadad doing? He's pleading for his life. But what has God's point been throughout all of this? I'm going to give you the victory. He got away from you once already. You're supposed to take him out. You're not supposed to make a covenant with him. So even in the midst of all these great victories, what do we see? God's great victories. What do we see Ahab doing again? Again, this failed leadership. Even though they saw that God was the Lord. And so then we come to our last scene or picture that we'll go through quickly here. In verses 35 through 43, we see that all leaders are held accountable. All of them. All leaders in God's eyes are held accountable. Guess who's going to be held accountable? Prophets are going to be held accountable. Even if you speak the word of God, you're going to be held accountable. Kings are going to be held accountable. Ahab and Ben-Hadad are going to be held accountable these failed leaders. So what happens? Verse 35, and a certain man of the son of the prophet came unto his neighbor. So here's a prophet again. And he comes unto his neighbor in the word of the Lord. And that point is really important. So he's saying what the Lord is telling him to do. And he goes, so a prophet goes to another one of his prophets. And this is what he says, smite me, I pray thee. 
and the man refused to smite him. Now, this might seem a little weird, but what is he asking? He's actually asking you, would you do bodily harm to me, injure me? That's what one prophet is asking another. And you might say, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that. That's not right. That's not kind. But notice that it's in the word of the Lord. In other words, this is according to what God had told this prophet to do. And yet the prophet refused to do it because he thought, oh, maybe, maybe God doesn't really want that. So what happens? Verse 36, and he said unto him, because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as thou art departed from thee, a lion shall slay thee. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. What happened with his prophets? Well, it's actually reminiscent of chapter 13 of 1 Kings. We won't turn there. But there is when an old prophet, God tells this old prophet, go to this other person's house, stay there, don't eat any bread or water, but I want you to do something, and then go on. The prophet goes to the house, but he eats bread and water. It's a simple little thing, not really a big deal, right? Prophet leaves the house, and a lion eats the prophet. Here we have another similar story. God says, uh, the prophet of God goes and says, in the word of the Lord, I want you to smite me. And the other prophet says, no, I don't really think that's a good idea. Even though it's God's word, he goes out and a lion gets him. What is God showing by these? That even God's own prophets are accountable to the word of the Lord. Even the people that speak for God are accountable to God's word. We're all under it. It's not one above or lording over. So verse 37 he, that is the prophet, found another man, another prophet, and said, Smite thee, I pray thee. And the man smote him, and smiting him, he wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with ashes upon his face. So finally, this prophet, the one speaking the words of God, got this smite or this injure, and then he put ashes on his face and disguised himself as a or an injured soldier. That's what he was trying to do here. And he's waiting for the king, that is King Ahab, to come by. Verse 39. And as the king passed by, he cried unto the king and said, Thy servant went out in the midst of battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me and said, Keep this man. If by any means he be missing, then shall the life for, be for his life, or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. What's the oath that he's saying here? I'm a soldier. Another soldier brought a prisoner of war up to me and said, keep this guy safe. Don't let him go. Don't let him go anywhere. And if you don't keep him, if you let him go, you're either going to be killed or you're going to have to pay a talent of silver. Now, a soldier, there's no way he could pay the talent of silver. So his only option was to guard that man, to keep the prisoner of war in custody. But what does he say he did? Oh, I just went to and fro and I lost track of this guy and he got away. So that's the story he's giving to King Ahab. And then he asked King Ahab, and as thy servant was busy here and there, and the king of Israel saying to him, So shall thy judgment be if, thou, if thyself hath decided it. What is he saying? Ahab is telling back to the man, You deserve death because you didn't keep your word. You deserve to die. It's a little reminiscent of Nathan going to David after his sin with Bathsheba, saying there's this rich man who stole a poor man's sheep for slaughter, and then turning it right back around and saying, David, you are that man. That's what's happening here as well. Verse 41, And as he hasted, he took the ashes away from his face, the disguise, and the king of Israel discerned him that he was of the prophets. He was a prophet of God. And he said unto him, the prophet said to King Ahab, Thus saith the Lord, Because thou hast let go of the hand, the, thy hand of a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, 
Therefore thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased and came to Samaria. That's the end of chapter 20. What's happening here? God's not only holding his own prophets accountable, he's holding the kings, the leaders accountable as well. Ahab is accountable. He's saying, this man was appointed to destruction. You let him go. Now you and your family will die as well. And how does Ahab respond? The last verse tells us and actually feeds right into the next story of Naboth's vineyard. If you remember that story where Ahab wants this vineyard, but he can't have it. So he's actually heavy and displeased. It's the same exact phrase. He's in a bad mood because of the discipline of the Lord. He's trying to go make himself happy there. So the question comes to all of us. Are you following God's word? Are you going to obey what God has revealed? Are you just following whatever leader seems convenient at the time? Or what are you going to do with failed leaders, even failed spiritual leaders? Does God hold them accountable? Absolutely. What about wicked kings, wicked presidents? Is God going to hold them accountable? Yeah. What about the leadership in your own home and your own life? Is there accountability before an almighty God for those things? Yes. So what's your response going to be? Notice Ahab was pouting and it led him right into another sin of murdering Naboth for his vineyard. So how are you going to respond to leadership? And I use that word broadly. How are you going to respond to bad leadership and good leadership? Because we all respond to it in some way. We can respond to it with squabbling or we can respond to it with the promise, plan, and victory that God has promised and given. And how are you going to respond to correction in your own life? You can go like Ahab and and be upset about it. Or you can submit to it. And aren't you thankful that God's going to take care of it all? This is the beauty of Jesus in coming to die on the cross for the sin of the world. That God is going to righteously judge every sin, every failed leadership, every sin in each one of our hearts and lives. And God can righteously either put all of your sin on Jesus and you don't have to bear that consequence. Praise the Lord. That is the the best exchange ever. Or you can be outside of Jesus and you get to bear that full judgment of God as we're seeing in the book of Revelation. So what is the call for you and I today? Well, there's leaders. There's a lot of leaders. Some good, some bad. But ultimately, we have to follow the word of the Lord. And this should give you great comfort, because guess what? I I know it sounds bad to say this today of all days, but Pastor Jeff is not going to be here forever. And he would say that himself. He said that a lot before his accident. So, no, he's not going out to look at a different church. Don't worry, you don't have to get scared of that. For some reason, people do that sometimes when their pastors are traveling. That's not what's happening at all. But yet, we know that Pastor Jeff is not going to live forever in the bodily form that he has right now. And he would say, praise the Lord, because he wants a new body too. I'm not going to be here forever either. Your pastors, we're committed to this church. We want to do God's work here. We want to see God work, and we want to grow together. But the bottom line is, we're not following one man's leadership. 
we're following our God's leadership. In other words, we want to be on his path, see where he's going, and get on board with his word. And what does that look like? Well, we've seen what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like squabbling. It doesn't look like pouting. It doesn't like, look like doing your own thing. It doesn't look like friendships with the enemy. All of those things, that's what it doesn't look like. But it does look like obeying the word of the Lord because everyone is held accountable to the word of the Lord. So even in failed leaderships, follow God's word.